0: Now if you haven't got a Bible, it might be helpful if you had one, so put your hand up if you'd like to borrow a church Bible and didn't pick one up. We're on page 1,237, 1,237, it is Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6, page 1237. As you know, we're in this series in the book of Revelation, and uh, we've reached a new phase today. And um, we've called this series, The Drawing Aside of the Curtain, or Drawing the Curtain Aside. The old Bible used to call the book of Revelation the Apocalypse, and the word Apocalypse simply means that, the unveiling or the drawing aside of the curtain. That's why we've called it that, and today we're thinking about the tragedy of man that is mentioned in chapter 6. And I have to tell you, it's not the easiest chapter in the Bible to talk about and to understand. So if you have an entirely different view of this chapter, well, you're welcome to it. (laughs) But I'm not going to argue with you about it because I'm sure that um, none of us has the complete truth. The book of Revelation itself is often sidelined, marginalized, but it is one of the most intriguing books in the Bible, isn't it? it it's, it's fascinating in many ways. And one of the problems we have in dealing with the book of Revelation, that in the West, um, we tend to think with a, well, they call it the Platonic view of life. It's the a Greek view where you think in terms of, of one thing following another thing, following another thing, which leads to a conclusion, propositional Point one leads to point two, leads to point three, and that leads to the conclusion, and so on. And we think like that, we're taught to think like that in school, we think like that in our homes, etc., etc. But in the New Testament times, and still in many parts of the world, they don't think like that at all. They think think in terms of the picture. So that when they came to Jesus and said to Jesus, Jesus, who is my neighbour? He didn't say, well, the first point about a neighbor is that he lives near you. The second point is that he's someone who interests you. The third point is that somebody you have something in common with. He didn't do that at all. He said, when they said, who is my neighbor? He said, well, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell amongst thieves. And he told a story from which the truth, the answer to that question arose. And it's quite a helpful thing for us to think like that. And in fact, in our country as in many parts, even in the West today, we're turning round gradually to think like that. But Jesus didn't, when he told that story, he didn't intend that they analyzed every point of that story about the Good Samaritan. He was telling a story to make a lesson, to point out a lesson. Of course, there have been people who try to take every point. I can remember going to church and being told, oh yes, well the inn to which the man was taken, well that's the church. And the two coins that the Good Samaritan gave to the innkeeper, well, that's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, if you'd gone down the road, you'd have heard somebody say, no, those two things are the Holy Spirit and the Bible. Well, you, you can draw lessons from all of these things. I'm not knocking them, really, but I'm saying that they were never really intended to be taken like that. It's not necessarily wrong, but it's not the way we should necessarily treat it either. And in our Western philosophical um, makeup, we want to know what everything means. What does this verse mean? What does that image mean? etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And I'm sure that there are unfolding truths that, from God's word that will help us to understand these different images and different pictures. But we are, if we're not careful, sometimes in danger of going too far trying to analyze every point and every phrase that's being said and say, ah, but this points to that and that points to that and that one goes back to Ezekiel and that one goes to Daniel and so on and so on. There's truth in all of that. I don't want to to tell you not to do it, but be careful that you don't try and read things in that are not there. Uh, I mean, I can remember going to prophetic conferences in the past where the whole theme was, you know, the ten Horns of the beast in the book of Daniel—that's the Common Market, the ten nations of the Common Market. I can remember Dr. Frederick Tatford, who some of you may know by name, if not in person. He's died now, but he often used to speak on this subject, and I can remember him saying, "There can be no dubiety about this—that is what it is, the Ten Commandments, and so on. Uh, the ten pe- um, people in the Common mar- Nations in the Common Market." Funny, you don't hear so much of it today, isn't it? Because they're twenty-seven now in the common market. So we do have to be careful. It, things like that may be relevant, but there is danger in speculating a bit too much, and especially when you become too dogmatic in your speculation. It's not always helpful. So what we need to do is to treat this book as God speaking to us and bringing us a message. What is the message? What's he telling us? in this book, as with other books of the Bible. Now, the approach to the book of Revelation has been treated down the years in roughly four different ways. There's, first of all, you can forget all this bit, but I'll just tell you, the Preterist view. That comes from a Latin word meaning past. And they say, well, everything in the book of Revelation happened in the first two centuries, particularly the first century. So it's just what happened in the past. It's already finished and done with. Then there's the historicist view that tells us that this is giving us a whole sweep of history from the beginning of the church till the return of Christ. It's giving us a sweep of history. And uh, some forms of that are called dispensationalism, where the the history is divided up into different dispensations, the historicist view of the book of Revelation. Then there's the idealist view. That's the view that this is a book made up of symbols images and uh, they're not necessarily meant to be taken literally or even to relate to specific historical events but they're meant to give us a picture to help us understand truth the idealist view and then there's the futurist view the futurist view says ah, this book is telling us about things that are going to happen in the future as the uh, the end of the age comes just before and during the return of Christ. Indeed, after the return of Christ as well. It's meant to give us pictures uh, to do with that. But whichever view you take, and I'm not going to tell you which view to take, but whichever view of those four views that you may take, or any portions of it, you do have to remember that Paul said to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture, of which this is part, all Scripture is given to us for correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely or thoroughly equipped for every good work. Yes, he did say it's given to us for teaching, but goes on to say for correcting, rebuking, and encouraging, so that the man of, uh, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. So there's a danger in taking this and pushing it all off to the future and the past and so on, and it never really gets round to train us in righteousness. But all scripture is given to train us in righteousness. In other words, it's not meant to just intrigue us, fascinate us, or even just to instruct us, but to help us to live for God's glory. So we should apply that to ourselves. Now, if you've got your Bible, before we actually look at chapter 6, just look at chapter 1 for a second. Chapter 1, verse 1, says this. This is the revelation, the apocalypse, the unveiling, the drawing aside of the curtain, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. So it's things seen by John that he writes down, symbols, pictures, images, things seen by John in the visions God gave him. It's interesting, isn't it, that the book of Revelation, keep your finger in chapter 1, but it's interesting that the book of Revelation has down the centuries of the Christian church been, above all other books, one of the books that people turn to when they are under great pressure or persecution. You can go to the East today, where the church some parts of the church are under great persecution, ask what their favorite book is, many, many of them say the Book of revelation, Book of revelation it 's because it 's a book that helps us to be encouraged when we're under pressure, encouraged so it 's not just given to us for us to analyze, but when we're suffering say oh that's why i 'm suffering and when we see things that are good, we say, isn't it wonderful? And see it in the context of things that one day we will share in. And it puts everything into perspective for us. So, Revelation chapter 1. Now look at verse 9 of chapter 1. I, John, your brother and companion in the sufferings, the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus was on the island of Patmos Patmos, because the word of, of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus now did you notice those three words your brother and companion in the suffering the kingdom and the patient endurance the kingdom is what we look for but either side of the kingdom there's the struggle the suffering the patient endurance but in the middle is the kingdom so when you're facing the pressures, when you're under pressure and you feel your back is against the wall and uh, you can only see the same things in the future, ah, but in the middle of it, there's the kingdom. And it's interesting how again and again in the New Testament, you see those three things coming like that. Acts 23, for example. Paul has been arrested and he is, um, well, in, let me just turn to it. In Acts 23, he is uh, being taken to Rome to give an account of himself in Rome and to account of the gospel in Rome. And it says this. Verse 9. There was a great uproar. Some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. Whatever spirit or an angel had spoken to him, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. So he ordered the troops down to take him away from the force and uh, by force and bring him to the barracks. So here's Paul being arrested and taken by force to the barracks. Pressure for Paul. Verse 12. The next morning the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they killed Paul. So in verse 10, violence, Paul arrested, put in prison. Verse 12. The people forming a plot to kill and murder Paul. But between, there's verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. Suffering, kingdom, patient endurance. Or back to chapter 18 of Acts. We won't keep on with this because it's not our primary subject, but it's helpful to us. Chapter 18, here's Paul in Corinth. Verse 4, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And it says that, verse 6, then the Jews opposed him, opposed Paul and became abusive. He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibilities. From now on I'll go to the Gentiles. And Paul left the synagogue and went next door. Then verse 12. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into the courts. So without going into all the details, here he is preaching, but he's kicked out of the synagogue. He has to go next door into a hired hall. He's under pressure. Then verse 12, he's arrested and hauled before the authorities again. But between the two, verse 9, one night Paul, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one's going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. The suffering, the kingdom, the patient endurance. Now when we come to chapter 6, and you can turn back to that now, page 1,237. Chapter 6 of Revelation, you find some of this suffering and what God is doing in it in this particular chapter. And it's going to be a quick sketch of what is there. We sometimes call this chapter the chapter of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Four horsemen of the revelation. And you even hear it being talked about in secular circles sometimes. These four horsemen. And it's pretty intense material that we have here. And it's clear that Whatever your interpretation of the book is, there is a strong element of looking forward to things that will take place when or before the Lord returns. If you think this world is bad now, just you wait to what what it will be like. Two young men in July in Sheffield were sentenced for a crime they committed last Christmas they had been drinking a bit and they decided just there and then to go out and kill someone they picked up a pickaxe handle went out onto the street followed a 68 year old man a Christian man Alan Greaves on his way to play the organ at church and followed him for a while behind him then went up to him and smashed his head in. no reason no motive, just decided to do it. A few weeks before that, in Colorado in the United States, a man walked into the midnight showing of the film, Batman film, The Dark Knight Rises. And he opens fire with a machine gun. He kills 12, he injures 53, 11 of them, seriously, critically. He called himself the Joker one of the characters in the film the reason there was none he had no motive he just decided to do it was it psychological disturbance in the man was it a political motive was it a social motive that he had the television programs discussed it again and again and again afterwards because they were so shocked that anybody could do such a thing but let's ask ourselves: why should that surprise us when we teach our children day by day and week by week, and we tell them in school that they are just a fairly advanced animal, why should we be surprised if they behave like animals? We shouldn't be surprised at all. But I'll tell you the reason. The reason was because men and children are not basically good, but basically bad. I was taking some meetings in North Nibley some years back, just down the road from here. And we had a meeting in the home of the uh, owner of the post office and the corner shop there in that village of, of North Nibley. And the neighbors and friends were invited, and they were sitting up the stairs. The stairs were in the sit- ran up from the sitting room, they were sitting up the stairs and all over the floor and all over the furniture and so on. And I was speaking, and in the course of it, I used Julia as an illustration and about how Julia has... A sinful nature. Sorry about that, Julia. And uh, she had a sinful nature. She was born with a sinful nature because that's what the Bible says. So was I, so were you. And I talked about this for a bit and I said that we never had to tell Julia how to say no to us. She learned that quite naturally. I had to teach her, we had to teach her how to say yes. Because we have a sinful nature. When I was talking about this, somebody sitting on the, halfway up the stairs stood up and shouted at me. A woman. She said, that's not right. She said, children are pure. And was on about it uh, with me. And at at the very worst, she said, they're neutral. They're they're pure, they're neutral. And others joined in before very long. There was a huge argument going on in this thing. Backwards and forwards. Well, all I can say is that the Bible says with the King David, in sin did my mother conceive me. And that I inherited a sinful nature. I wish I could tell you that things were going to get better in the world, but I can't. They actually are going to get worse in the world. The worst is yet to come. Antichrist, Armageddon, the Great Tribulation, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, and so on. What do those terms mean? Actually, I just looked up this morning, before it came out, I looked up the word apocalypse in Google, just to see. There were 63 million pages on the apocalypse in Google. I didn't read too many, but 63 million. You look at the Middle East today, as I say, without trying to analyze things, I mean, Syria is a powder keg. Have you noticed how people in the United States and the United Nations and Syria itself are talking about a third world war? They're even using that phrase. Is this the beginning of a third world war? Actually, it's a sideline, but we should be praying very much for the Christians in Syria at this time because they fared reasonably well under President Bashar al-Assad. But the opposition to him have already sworn that when they get to power, they will sh- destroy Christians. We be, need to be very careful what we pray for in countries like that in, in uh, Syria and so on. Because many of them, of course, are linked with Al-Qaeda. Not all, but many are linked with Al-Qaeda. So we need to be careful what we pray for. But that situation calls to mind Ezekiel 38 and 39, where the nations from the north, it says, called Magog in the Bible, the nations from the north, north march on Israel. And amongst them is Persia, Iran. Remember, Jesus said, when you see these things begin to happen, look up. For your redemption draws near." Billy Graham once wrote a book called "The Approaching Horse Beats Ho- uh, Hoofbeats: The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse." And th- let me just read one sentence from it: "I want to put your ears lower to the ground," he said, "to hear the hoofbeats getting louder day by day. I can hear the hoofbeats of these horses much na- louder now than when I-, I started my ministry. That was written in 1983. 30 years ago. Today, you don't have to put your ear to the ground to hear. The sound of the ho- horse beats is getting louder and louder and in it's increasingly thunderous. I mean, just what's happened in the last 30 years. Computer age has come. Worldwide information technology through technology. Um, militant Islam is on the rise. World's Somebody said it's the world's most dangerous group. Two Gulf Walls have taken place, Afghanistan, escalating violence in the Middle East, increasing pressures on Israel, the overthrow of Libya and Egypt and Syria, all becoming more and more anti-Israel. And without question, the world is a much more dangerous place, even than when the Cold War was at its height, though there were very great peaks in that. And, uh, I mean, the... When communism collapsed and the Berlin Wall came down and all that, people were saying this is the ushering in of a new age of much more peaceful, much, much more peace and much more safety in the world. But few would argue that today. So here we are in chapter 6. Chapter 6 to 9 speak of seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Bowls. 6 to 19, I mean, not 6 to 9, 6 to 19. And in chapter 5, it talks about the one who opens the seals. And the lamb is the only one who can open those seals. So what are these seals as they are opened? We we read of the seven of them. And the first one is in chapter 6, verse 1. And uh, a man on a white horse, verse 2 you watch westerns you will know that the one wearing a white hat is always the good man but not here he appears to be good but he's stolen his white hat from someone who's someone else he should be wearing a black hat <laughs> if you follow the westerns but he's he's uh, appears to be good but he's not good he in fact he's not a good guy at all he's super bad he is what we call from other parts of scripture, the Antichrist. In fact, Revelation 19 clearly says that Christ is the one on the white horse and this man should not be confused with him. There's a relationship between them, but not a good one. He's masquerading as Christ. Matthew 24 parallels it. We haven't time to look at it in detail. And in Matthew 24, Jesus said, many will come in my name claiming this, that, and the other. The word antichrist, you know, the anti-bit, the prefix there, can mean against, but it can also mean instead of. And this one comes and he offers himself as an alternative to Christ. He is instead of Christ, and consequently he's against Christ. He's a conqueror, bent on conquest, it says in verse 2. Chapter 19 of Revelation says that uh, Christ comes to end all wars. This one comes bent on war. One begins a tremendous time of peace, the other a tremendous time of turmoil and war. The picture of the New Testament of the Antichrist is fulfilled again and again in Scripture. But he won't... He isn't one who's dressed in a black, long robe with red flashing eyes and horns and so on. Not that picture at all. He will be most attractive, perhaps the most attractive of people that we have seen. Over a hundred Bible passages speak about the Antichrist. Is he alive today? I don't know, but it's probably very likely. He will rise to power and he will bring global economic stability and a worldwide peace. He'll be a great peacemaker. Is this a single man or is this a system, a philosophy? Again, we don't really know, but it's certainly focused in a man. Daniel describes him as the master of deception. He will do what no one else can do. He will end global war and he will end terrorism. Some feel that he will be the one who enables the Jews to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, which, of course, has been, that site has been occupied with Islam and the mosque of the golden, with the Golden Dome that you see in the pictures. Now, where does he get his ability to do those things? Well, it says in chapter 13, in verse 12, the dragon, who's a picture of Satan, it says in, in Scripture, the dragon gives him the power Throne and great authority. But before you start getting too worried, don't forget the context of this is God is still in control. He is in control. He is sovereign, which is why chapter 5, which is all about the Lamb upon the throne, why chapter 5 precedes this terrible chapter. God is in control. Christ is on the throne. This is even, this is the first horse. And he's given the crown. It appears that he will come into great power with many, many good things, like dictators so often do. They come and do good things to start with, and gradually, when people turn to them, they start exercising control over what happens, much as Hitler did. When Hitler came to power, people say he did many good things when he was in Austria and so on, until he got to power. And then he began to turn. I wonder if you meet people who say sometimes, well, I'm not really religious, but I'm a spiritual person. I don't go to church, but I believe in the spiritual life. Some of them call themselves new age people, which seems to me are people who make it up as they go along, spiritually speaking. Well, it seems that this man, he may be spiritual, but he is not good at all. And 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 to 12 says he will come with all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and every sort of evil that deceives. And by the way, the only ones that will not be tolerated are Bible-believing Christians. That's the first one. Then the second seal, verses 3 to 4. Second seal. This is a red, fiery horse. It is easily recognized as wars. It says in verse 4 that he has the power to slay men or to slaughter men. Not necessarily organized armies, but perhaps civil disobedience, anarchy, could be included in it. Though it could include organized armies. It's interesting, isn't it, that these days nearly all the major conflicts in the world started with civil disobedience. Not armies starting it, but civil disobedience. Libya, Egypt, Syria, Afghanistan. Civil disobedience. Um, Some, of course, have taken that so far that the country becomes ungovernable. has no real government, like Somalia today. No real government in Somalia at all today. But when Antichrist comes, he comes and he takes peace from the world. Whereas, of course, Christ himself brought peace to the world. He's the prince of peace. And this horse, this fiery red horse of war, was given a large sword, it says in the end of verse 4. A large sword. We don't fully know what that means. Does it mean he's given access to tremendously powerful weapons? We don't know. But it perhaps could mean that. And by the way, did you <laughs> it's interesting that during the First World War, 20 million people died. They say up to 60 million people in the Second World War. But today, one nuclear submarine, of all the nuclear submarines, of many, just to take one of them, one nuclear submarine has 40 times more killing power than all of the weaponry used in the First and Second World War put together. War. Third rider. Verses 5 and 6, the rider on a black horse, on a black horse. This is perhaps a picture, if you remember, as it was read to us by Karen. She read and told us about the quart being given for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, but not to damage the oil and wine. This black horse, perhaps this is a picture of worldwide famine. Food for one day at a time. That's all people had could afford to buy. Just enough to barely survive. And the only things that were protected from this were the luxuries, food and wine. May not be famine. May be economic uh, inflation out of control. And by the way, some would suggest that chapter 13 and verse 17 comes into play here because that's where it says that the only people who would be allowed to trade in that time are those who have the mark on their hand or their forehead. I'll leave that with you, the black horse. Then verses 7 and 8, the pale horse. The Greek word for pale is the word chloros, from which we get our word chlorine. It means pale green, a very sort of wishy-washy pale green horse, deathly looking. And perhaps refers to pandemics that will sweep the world at that time. Chemical weapons. Have you heard anything about that recently? Chemical weapons or something like that. During World War I, 20 million people died in the war. But over 21 million people died of influenza at that time. Six million died of typhus during that time. But here it says, chloros. The pale horse will lead to the death of a quarter of the world. What is sure is that Jesus said that famine is one of those things that will mark the approach of the end times. And it's not difficult for us to see these four horses approaching, is it? Counterfeit, deceptive, leadership, antichrist. Taking over religion. Telling religious people what they must do and what they can't do. Wars, horse number two. Famine and economic collapse, horse number three. Death, disease, pandemics, horse number four. But then right behind comes horse number five. This is verses nine and 11. And this is the picture of the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. This is a little difficult for us to understand because it says that they are waiting and waiting and waiting and it raises the question, do you, when those people die as Christians, do you wait to go into the presence of the Lord Jesus? Or do you go immediately into the presence of the Lord Jesus? Do you wait till everybody is ready and then the whole lot go? Or do you go as you die? What is the biblical picture? Well, in fact, both are right. Both. There's that verse in the Bible that says, "Absent from the body, present with the Lord." But there's this passage that talks about waiting, and it can be both right because we have to remember that time, from which waiting is a part, of which waiting is a part. Time is part of the created order of things. God created time. He Himself is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's without time. He's in the past. He's in the present. He's in the future. He's in it all. Time doesn't have the same meaning in God's presence. So when somebody actually dies and you ask the question, do they wait to go into God's presence? Well, it's a meaningless question. There is no time. So Paul says those who died won't precede those who are still alive. But on the other hand, when you die, you're present with the Lord. Because time doesn't mean the same thing at that time. Time ceases when you die. And it talks about those who had been slaughtered for the sake of their testimony, and they cry out, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the, Lord, the, uh, inhabitants of the earth and j- avenge our blood? The cry of those under persecution, a cry that goes up today from many parts of the world. And finally, this morning, the sixth seal, nature itself. This is verses 12 to 17 nature itself, nature turns, earthquakes, perhaps a picture of volcanic activity, kings and slaves all together running into the caves and calling on the rocks to call on them because the thing is so terrible, and they realize this is a judgment from their God, God and they don't want to face God, and they say to the rocks, fall on us, destroy us now, we cannot face God. And by the way, if you're wondering where the seventh seal is, it becomes at the beginning of chapter 8, but that's not our passage today. So blind panic sets in. So as we close this morning, I wonder if you pick up the rumblings of the four horsemen in the world today. It's that that we should not miss. Don't try to fit every word, every little image into a pattern to try and work out everything and so on, because in five years' time, it might be all out of date. But catch the draft of what is being said here. Catch the terrible scene of man left to himself. Paul speaks of the time when the Holy Spirit will be withdrawn, when his restraining influence upon men will be withdrawn, and man is just left to himself, and so on. Now, why are we told all this? We're told all this so that we might look up. Lift up our eyes. Yes, things are going to get worse, but lift up our eyes to see the one on the throne. And we're told it too so that the word of God may train us in righteousness so that we might be equipped for every good work. We're not told all these things so we may spend our time looking around for Antichrist. We're told all these things so that we might spend our time looking for Christ, not Antichrist. So don't get too fascinated by everything. We're looking for the return of Jesus Christ doesn't matter if you don't know and can't recognize the Antichrist doesn't matter too much but I have to ask you the question this morning do you know do you recognize Jesus do you know who he is is he the one in the center of your life because if so then you're absolutely secure in all of this and to finish I'm going to read Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 5 Verses 4 to 11, It's page 1188, 1 Thessalonians 5, where we read this. But brothers, you are not in darkness, so this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, alive or dead, we might live together with him, Therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. So verse 6, wake up. See what's happening. Verse 7 and 8, sober up. Don't get drunk. That means don't let other things become the controlling force in your life. And verse 8, dress up. Put on the whole armor of God for these days in which we live. We'll be continuing in Revelation, God willing, next week. Let's pray together.